Welcome to Backroom Talk. Unilateral and bilateral training today, so we're going real fitnessy. Bilateral or unilateral, what is going to be better? Could each have some utility depending on who's in front of us? Because if we're saying we have a discrepancy somewhere, uh, when we start like tearing layers apart, it only makes sense to do one side at a time. To listen to more Backroom Talk, be sure to subscribe. Learn to design personalized programs with the OPEX system of coaching by heading to opexfit.com. All right, guys. Welcome to another episode of Backroom Talk. We may be really awkward and rusty today because uh, we had a couple of weeks of vacation, so we haven't yeah. actually recorded an episode in a while. Yeah, they, you didn't even have to tell them that. They oh, would no. have never noticed because we've been dropping uh, episodes. I know. But I, I like the honesty, though. That's good. Yeah. I feel like I had to be upfront because, <laughs> again, if we're like super weird and like can't hold a conversation, then I think it's best that people know. Well, they're just going to be like, what the hell is the difference? <laughs> That's how they always are. <laughs> Super weird and, and can't hold a conversation. <laughs> well, uh, before we get into, I know you have an article share, to share and we're going to be yeah. talking about unilateral and bilateral training today. Mm-hmm. So we're going real fitnessy. Yep. I just want to take 10 seconds, guys, to uh, let you know that when this episode has dropped, we will have just opened enrollment for our October CCP cohort. So I know there's a lot of people listening and some of you guys have probably thought about, you know, this coaching certificate program thing that, uh, that we offer that James and Carl teach. And so now would be a really good time to actually get a little info in that. Uh, go ahead on onto our website, opexfit.com. Just go hit that CCP button up the top. Apply, schedule a call, and we can have a chat about it. Um, just want to give that a little little shout out. Yeah, and if you sign up, I will send you a personalized letter and a book. I was actually thinking about like <laughs> what I could sweeten the deal with. Like if you mention that you listen to Backroom Talk and you sign up for the next cohort, Carl will send you x but i didn't get any further than that his underwear that's only weird. dirty ones right? <laughs> <laughs> all right let's move on from that okay. um hopefully we see a few people in ccp yeah definitely uh let's talk about this article yeah so this is something that's been extremely interesting to me almost forever to be honest with you and i'll explain why but um let me just read the the lead into this article and then i'll give you some context and i like we were talking about before we press record, I think it's going to be interesting to get your take on this because you're so far removed from NCAA sports and the uh, the craziness that is college sports in the United States. So um, just really quick. So article starts off. Uh, so this is NP- an NPR article. Will we link it? We will. Yes. Okay, cool. So um, starts off a new era and college sports begins this week following Kentucky governor uh, Andy Bashir's executive order allowing college athletes to be compensated for their use of their name, image, and likeness, known by its abbreviation NIL. At least seven states will put this into effect. Uh, NL- NIL laws on Thursday. The law allows athletes to make money for things like endorsement deals, signing autographs, and social media content. Uh, that's been prohibited under NCAA rules, but now the organization is in the process of reforming those rules. So overall, what this means is if a college athlete, basketball player, baseball player, volleyball player, whatever sport it is, someone goes to school, a university to play a sport, There's very, there have been very, very tight rules that, and the NCAA has always called this amateurism. So they're saying, because you're not a professional athlete, you cannot get paid for playing this sport by the university, which still holds true as well as you cannot get paid by using your name, your image, and your likeness. For example, let's say that I'm a college football player and I'm very, very good and people want my autograph. 
I can't go and sign autographs and get paid for it because that's against NCAA laws because I'm an amateur. I'm not a professional athlete. But the NCAA is making billions and billions and billions of dollars off of my name, image, and likeness uh, with TV deals, selling jerseys, being in video games, the whole nine. So this rule removes that. So it says, hey, it's fucking open season. You now have 18-year-old athletes that are able to, and we're talking like, you know, someone comes in, they're like the number one rated basketball or football player in the country. Those people are very famous, like very, very famous, not only in their universities, but in like NFL prosper scouts eyes and uh, fans eyes as well. Everyone wants that player on their team. So everyone knows who they are. So now it's open season. Those people can now sign agents. Those people can now sign endorsement deals. Those, those students can now go to the local car dealership and say like, Hey, I'll put my face on this billboard. If you give me a half a million dollars a year and that will be done, it's already being done. So this, this happened last Thursday by Friday, there were hundreds of athletes posting their brands on social media. There was, uh, you know, master P is no, sorry. Uh, <laughs> make them say, Oh, no, uh, that sounds familiar. But, yeah. Yeah. But... So master P it was before your time in the United States. He was okay. a very, very famous, uh, rapper from new Orleans. Okay. So he was part of the cash money millionaires. Okay. Okay. Big timers, okay. all those guys. But anyway, his son is a college basketball player. I believe he goes to Tennessee or he just signed to go to Tennessee. That kid signed a $2 million deal this weekend with some web company to just endorse them. Right. So it's like, you know, these, it's like the world of VA firms right now, right. Or VC firms right now. And they're just like throwing money all over the place. So now these kids that are just enrolling in, in college are getting million dollar deals, or in his case, $2 million deals to endorse these products or just to wear the logo. And there's like a, have you heard of Barstool Sports? Yes. So Barstool Sports, they've, they're, if you look at their Instagram, they have like swipeables of like dozens of athletes that they've already signed. And they're not going after the person I just talked about, like the, uh, the, you know, number one ranked recruit, blah, blah, blah. They're going after very attractive athletes or athletes with influence. So they're looking at like uh, female volleyball players to wear like, you know, barstool sports, sports bras, like under their uniforms or like if they're in like some wreck beach volleyball and they're paying them money to do this. So they're going after influence. This is just going to be insane. And the ramifications of this is going to be extremely interesting to to watch first let me get your take on what do you think about this amateurism idea and for the past 150 years these athletes that bust their ass i know i'm saying this very biasly bust their ass and they're like bringing all this cash to these to these universities these athletes weren't able to get a dime from what they're what they used in their name image, image and likeness over the past 100 150 years yeah i mean as an outsider coming from a country that does not have a culture of college sports anything like the us it was very strange to come here and like professional sports and college sports look like the same thing mm -hmm. essentially like i don't i truly don't understand the difference uh except that some of the kids are in college and some of them <laughs> <laughs> are not anymore. So why, like you said, these kids bust their ass and uh, they're, you know, dedicating their entire lives to play this sport for their school. Uh, there's probably a whole lot of sacrifice going on and a whole lot of work that's not allowing them to go outside of 
school to find work and make a little little money like mm. a lot of other uni students might be able to do while they're at college so why shouldn't they be able to capitalize on that and at the end of the day what is the difference between a college athlete and a professional athlete yeah it's where the money flows i guess but um yeah it's weird i mean because you'll there's been situations dozens and dozens of situations where you know you have um gosh there was one the other day that i was reading where there was a guy i think he played basketball for michigan state and it was like uh, March Madness, so it's like the tournament, like leading into the Final Four, into the the finals in college basketball. And this guy accepted uh, a forty dollar dinner uh, from like a booster or something like that. Like the boot, he the booster picked up the check, and this guy got suspended for March Madness because a booster paid his bill. So that's what the NCAA has done over over the the past decades right when in terms of uh sanctions and and stuff like that and there's so many stories of like uh college football players going to like autograph signings grabbing a couple thousand dollars underneath the table and getting suspended their eligibility is being pulled and they can't play the last two years of college football because they accepted a couple thousand dollars is it because the ncaa wants to be able to control uh all of the money coming in or is there another good reason that it's been disallowed until now yeah i think i think it's easy to say that like hey they they want to control the the money it's greed and all that i think that might be a part of it but i also think a huge part of it is also that when you start to throw money into things everything gets a little bit weird right so and i think i was talking to emma about this the other day but um let's let's imagine that you have a kid right this kid's really good at football and he grows up in arizona this kid turns 17 and you have uh, you have a school from you have a school from Texas recruiting him. So it's you know University of Texas is recruiting him, and then you have University of Wisconsin recruiting him. And both teams are really good; they're in good conferences. Blah blah blah. But now this is thrown in. There's sponsors, right? There's Pete. Like let's say there's just the car dealership because that's like the classic easy one. Uh, there's a car dealership, and the one in Texas says, "Hey, we're going to pay you a quarter million dollars." to put your face on the billboard. The one in Wisconsin says the exact same thing. Now that kid has to think about Texas doesn't have state taxes. So not even considering what the hell I'm doing on the field and football and all that, they're two really good universities. Do I go to Texas because now I don't have to pay state taxes on the quarter million dollars that I'm taking in from this deal over the next four years? Or do I go to Wisconsin where I have to pay state taxes on the quarter million dollars? That kid, your kid, you might tell your kid, hey, go to University of Texas because you're going to make more money, right? And that's just one really simple example. Now let's talk about, you know, if the the uh, $250,000 mil- $250, in Texas wasn't offered at University of Wisconsin, there is no car dealership, where are they going to go? They're going to go to Texas because they can take that $250,000 that they would have not gotten in Wisconsin. So recruiting is going to be weird. Decision Decisions on where people go are going to be weird. Um there's already a discrepancy in like, you know, money that universities have and their facilities and all that. That's already a recruiting uh, upside that that kids look at. It's like, oh, I want to go to this. I want to go to University of Alabama because their strength and conditioning facilities are unbelievable versus, you know, some Division two school in California. Uh, California is the wrong on the East Coast. Right. Because their 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 facilities are, are trash. Now it's like I have to think about the coaching staff, the record, the conference, the the facilities 
the money that I can get going to that university because of the connections with boosters and all that. So it's going to get weird, but I think this is going to be extremely interesting to watch. The other thing that comes to mind is just like what companies are are offering up sponsorships and what are players allowed to accept? And is there going to be any guidelines over, you know, what they are and are not able to be sponsored? There can't be. There can't be. So what about like a cannabis company wants to sponsor an athlete or, um, an alcohol company if the athletes over 21 yeah like is I mean, that what what happens there yeah i mean it's it's one of those things it's like you can't unless it's in you know unless that has been told to that athlete before they went to that university you can't just make up rules when these things come along so that will be another consideration what are the stipulations on what kind of money can i accept going to this university so the NCAA was caught completely off guard. They lost the Supreme Court ruling, and it just smashed them. They weren't ready for it. So the NCAA is like, we don't know what to do. Follow the state guidelines, what your state allows. And if your state doesn't have guidelines, universities just make up your own shit. So essentially, they're just saying, like, you know, universities or states, please tell these athletes what they can or cannot do because we weren't ready for this. So athletes that are going to these universities just need to do some research and ensure that they align with that university's values and whatever that thing may be. But if that's not a rule, it's like, hey, just because I'm wearing a, you know, a, a, a rock tequila, I don't know what this tequila company's called, because I'm wearing a rock tequila shirt doesn't mean that I'm drinking the tequila. I don't care if I'm 17 years old. The rock's paying me a couple million dollars. Yeah, but you know, young kids look at that and they totally think that person is. Who cares? True. Yeah, I yeah. Don't know. I think yeah, it's not illegal schools, right now, like for yeah. a kid to wear a Coors Light shirt. You know yeah. what I mean? Down the street. You schools know what I mean? are, at the end of the day, academic institutions that mm-hmm. are trying to uphold. I think some kind of a reputation. <laughs> maybe not. Maybe <laughs> Sorry, it's different here. That, that was really funny. <laughs> not when we're talking about uh, athletics running. Yeah. Okay. In this country, like that's unfair. In mo, in school, in Division One, Power Five conference schools, athletics run the show. The coaches are making the football coaches or basketball coaches are making more than the university's president. That tells you a lot right there. You know what I mean? So um, didn't mean to laugh at that. But if we're if we're if we're talking about some universities where, you know, they don't have like good athletic programs, they don't put any funding into that. Their coach is making 80K a year. It's like, yeah, that that might be the case. But in these like really serious conferences and divisions around the country, Ooh, sports are sports are it. Sports bring bring the bread. America is so weird. <laughs> love it, love it. Don't get me wrong, but it's just so different than what I grew up with. Yeah. Sorry, I just wanted to hit that that yeah. extended a little further than than I intended, but I think it's such an interesting thing, and I'm I'm uh, excited to see where this thing goes. And uh, hey, we might be going to ASU and uh, putting some OPEC shirts on some people. There we go. <laughs> well, guys, if you have any thoughts uh, about what Carl just uh, just proposed there, let us know in the comment- comments below. Should we uh, move on to some unilateral versus bilateral training? Weird transition, but yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. I mean, the best way I think to transition in, in life is just to rip off the just band-aid and go for it. Yeah, let's, so let's that's, roll. that's my style. Uh, so I think what we're going to do is walk through a couple different training goals or like, you know, dose responses that we're looking from from training and just kind of figure out bilateral or unilateral what is going to be better could each have some utility depending on who's in front of us and uh and go from there so let's start with absolute strength i think that would be just like a nice logical starting point so you have a client well before before we jump into it yeah uh where where do you stand not on like bilateral versus unilateral we'll end it with that but where do you stand on 
thought like what what sparked this because this was actually your uh your idea to have this conversation what sparked it are you hearing a lot of these questions are you having these conversations are you thinking about it in your own head like what where did this come from i was i was just in training i have a lot of uh my best thoughts (laughs) no i'm not gonna (laughs) call them that but i have a lot of thoughts when i'm doing exercise whether Mm -hmm. i'm like riding my bike or in the gym just like stew around ideas and that's uh, i think we were talking about potential podcast topics in the gym and I think I might have been doing some lunges, some uh, some reverse lunges off the riser. You were, yeah, you were. Yeah, yeah. 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 And uh, it got me, it got me thinking about bilateral versus unilateral training when you may or may not use one. Um, but I think it's something I'm constantly thinking about as a coach. Uh, anytime a client comes to me and I'm mm-hmm. thinking about what is going in their A's, B's, and C's, like you have to make a conscious decision each time whether you want to choose a bilateral or a unilateral exercise. Uh, be- because they're so connect, they're just going to produce a different result, yeah, right? Like yeah. there always has to be that deliberate choice in program design. You can't just slap random exercises on people and think you're going to get what you want from that yep. training response. And I think, you know, this conversation should cover some of that. Cool. Fair enough. Yeah. I remember um, years and years ago, um, I looked at unilateral exercises as like higher order exercises because they weren't the way that I was brought up, they weren't done very often. And then I hit this like stage in training uh, for myself. I think it was like after high school, uh, maybe I was in, in university. Uh, but that's when I really started to like really dig it. And I went way too far with like unilateral stuff and we'll hit it at the end and preference. But that's where that idea uh, came from where I was like doing, you know, A's through E's of, of unilateral work. And I'd look at my watch and I'm like, oh my God, I'm three hours in. Um, but yeah, let's, let's hit it, hit that at the end. Cool. Cool. No, uh, like last note there was that I definitely had a bilateral, uh, bias in my training for a long time, uh, with, with CrossFit mm-hmm. and that like being what I was into, um, in that world, there was not a lot of unilateral training that was coming there. So there was post CrossFit kind of a love affair with single arm and single yeah. leg work just because I hadn't been exposed to it for a number of years, um, just based on the sport. Yeah, CrossFit's using a lot of unilateral uh, exercise selection these days. It's which changed. Is awesome to see. Yeah, it's really good to see. Yeah, such a different dose response, and yeah. it's uh, it challenges those people that did have that bilateral, um, uh, like more that bilateral bias in their training uh, over the years. So it's been interesting to see, but yeah. they've adapted. That dumbbell snatch started it all. Yeah, it did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right, so let's let's talk uh, absolute strength. So. You have a client who comes to you and they they want to get as strong as possible, right? Like they say to you, maybe I want to I want to you know build as much uh, strength as I can. <laughs> I don't know what I'm going for. If you're yeah. listening, George is just like punching the air and flexing her bicep right now, <laughs> trying to get like create a really uh, intense response. They no, want to get, get super strong. So yeah, what what you. are you choosing? Like what's the <sighs> all things being equal? Yep. <laughs> Whatever the hell that means. <laughs> What does it? Okay, we'll get that. All things being equal, no discrepancies. We're all good. Someone wants to get as strong as possible. Um, I think the, the the easiest measure of that are bilateral exercises. Um, you know, when we look at absolute strength and we look at, uh, you know, historical context and, you know, what we know to be true as strong, it's easier to say, uh, you know, a 300-pound deadlift for a female is very good, right, for most people. Uh, it's very easy to say a 400 squat for a male is very good for most people, right? So um, it's a lot easier to say that than it is to say, 
you know, a uh, hundred pound single arm dumbbell bench press at three zero X one for eight reps per side is very good. Not because there's not because that's not like a, a good, you know, uh, measure of, of unilateral strength, but I think we just connect more to that bilateral, um, those bilateral exercises. And when we start to look at, you know, just pure brute, absolute strength, like we do measure that bilaterally, right? Like we think about like, you know, are you going to go and push a car with one hand? Probably not. You're probably going to go and push that thing with all you got with two hands. So I think bilateral, all things being equal is a better measure of absolute strength. And if we talk about, you know, when is that actually tested in sport? You look at powerlifting yeah. uh, and they're testing the squat bench and deadlift. They're not testing the single leg Romanian deadlift, single arm bench press and, uh, you know, rear foot elevated split squat. Yeah. They've chosen those exercises for a reason. And ultimately intensity is going to be higher. Like what you can put on the barbell uh, for a deadlift is always going to be heavier than what you can do in a single leg variation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's, there's less, uh, there's, there's less room for uh, like weird scenarios of like someone having better stability, let's say like the single leg RDL, someone having better uh, anterior tib stability. And that's why they were able to balance with the single leg RDL versus, Hey, just go pick that thing up. It's like, that person was just stronger, right? Yeah, you can say they have better stability in the midsection and all of that, but we would actually say that that's a, a, a great measure of absolute strength as well, is having great stability in the, in the midsection. So I do think that there's less variables in the bilateral work to just be like, yeah, you're strong. Definitely. It's not to say though that someone can't get stronger from doing unilateral work. Like I think that's an important thing to emphasize. And it's possible that someone's, you know, plateaued on their back squat. Like they've been sitting at 350 for months or years and they're just not seeing that go up and then you go ahead and you test their rear foot elevated split squat and they can only do 10% of their body weight per hand or something like that and then you work on that split squat and bring that up and that could ultimately end up helping them them bump up that uh back squat plateau right yeah I think if we look at um you know just concepts of adaptation uh you know, what do we adapt to? We usually adapt to things that we haven't done before. Like we adapt to them quicker um, or more efficiently. So if we do take someone, you know, that has a 350 pound back squat and they've plateaued on that, you can just say, hey, we're going to take some time away from, uh, you know, bilateral squatting and we're going to do some tough single leg work or unilateral work um, or just like lunge pattern stuff. Uh, keyword there being tough, right? Like it challenges them. So they're adapting to this thing and they're doing it on both sides. They're building a bunch of tonnage and volume and all of that. And then you bring them back to the back squat. And maybe there wasn't like an obvious discrepancy in like, you know, glutes firing or hips and, you know, knees going into valgus or anything like that. But they just, they're just more stable and more strong after coming out of that very robust intensification cycle of single leg work where they're just like, now I'm stronger in the back squat because each leg independently, each hip, each glute independently is now stronger. For most people, that will that will transfer to the back squat. If we're talking about like the top of the top and we're talking about 800-pound back squats, those people aren't going to 900 by doing single leg work. They need to back squat. Yeah. Um, anything else to add there related to absolute strength? No, I think uh, just stake in the ground, I guess. I, I, would, I would look at bilateral work. Um, as a better measure. Definitely. 
Okay, let's do, let's talk about discrepancies and uh, when we're seeing differences in left to right, uh, potentially, you know, in assessment or maybe even in like some strength FME testing. Uh, so unilateral or bilateral, where do we start? Uh, man, I'm going to go with unilateral here. I, I think <laughs> I support that choice and uh, maybe I set you up for that one. Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, you know, the reason why it's so obvious in my own head is just because we can, because if we're saying we have a discrepancy somewhere, uh, when we start like tearing layers apart, it only makes sense to do one side at a time or like utilize unilateral work, right? Because if someone has a discrepancy, obviously we'd have to like identify what that discrepancy is first. But just as a whole, if someone has a bilateral discrepancy to tear it apart, you probably want to look at each side independently and see where someone is. And when we start to identify those discrepancies, left to right, usually there is one, right? Like if a discrepancy is to be had, there is one left to right. And then you just implement strategies to clear up that discrepancy. Um, and I think a very easy low barrier one for a lot of people to use is if they find a discrepancy left to right, whether that's, um, you know, an external rotation test, uh, a split squat test, like you said, if you're doing a single leg RDL test, whatever it is, it's like, okay, I have a discrepancy, which means that I'm stronger, more flexible, uh, more stable, whatever the case is on one leg or one arm over the other, then you just train the, the one that's lagging and you match with the one that's not lagging because you don't want to create more of a discrepancy. And when you think about how that's done in practice, um, it's very simple, right? It's like you, you test someone in their split squat and they're like, okay, I got six reps at 70 pounds with my right leg. And I got eight reps, uh, at 70 pounds with my left leg. In training, you're like, okay, we're going to do dumbbell, rear foot elevated split squats. I want you to start with your right leg and whatever load you do and whatever, however many reps you do within this range, all you're going to do is you're going to match it with your left leg. So you're not trying to build up your left leg. You just want to make sure like no atrophy occurs, no like loss of patterning occurs. And you're really focusing on that right leg. And you do that for like 12 weeks, right? And then you retest that thing. Uh, at the end of that 12 weeks and you see what you implemented, if it works or not. Yeah, definitely. Uh, really important point there though would be to communicate that to your client and make sure they know uh, to start with that side that's weaker or has an issue. No, you just, <laughs> just throw it. No, but I've just, seen, just hope I've seen that and out. I've also seen it as a question. When in yeah. the past I've made the mistake of not being really explicit about it, I see that come back as a question to me with single arm, single leg work. So just being really clear that you want them to start on the weaker or the non-dominant, whatever side. Um, if needed, prescribe rest in the middle between sides because you're going to get that question. So be explicit with people whether you want it or you don't mm -hmm. and make sure they know that if on that left side they can do eight reps at 10 pounds on the power raise uh, and that left side is the issue then on the right side they're doing eight reps at 10 pounds as well yeah. they're not going to try and do more yeah it's a really but good point over communication has like been something i've really had to do with that yeah yeah and i would say unilateral work in terms of identifying discrepancies or cleaning up discrepancies is if we call assessment the truth unilateral work is the fucking truth right because it's like there's nowhere to hide from it so yeah. Just take someone or even you in your own training, like imagine you jumping on a bench press and doing tough single arm dumbbell bench presses. And, and you're just like watching someone do that. You can identify some pretty good discre or obvious discrepancies by what they do with their offed hand, right? Because uh, I've been asked that question a few times by clients. It's like, yeah, this is pretty tough, uh, but I don't really feel it that much in my chest. I can't actually balance my body on this bench press be, or on this bench because the load is just too heavy. 
So I have to like really make up for it with, I have to put this arm underneath the bench or I have to like do this thing. And it's like, yeah, just try to, you know, put that arm down and just relax with your left side and try to just use your right side. And a lot of people can't do that with one side or the other. And you'll usually find a discrepancy in the core. You'll find some, a discrepancy in even the lower body, interesting enough. Uh, but yeah, unilateral work is, it shows a lot of, of really cool things in, in, in terms of discrepancies with people. Definitely. Maybe uh, not cool. That was probably a little bit, of, I think it's cool. Fuck well, yeah. Funny. You know, that's okay. People are in pain <laughs> and suffering, but, uh, we think it's cool. That's cool. <laughs> quick, uh, quick question on that one. So, uh, let's say someone has a limb out of commission. Maybe they have a broken arm or a broken leg and mm-hmm. they just can't train one side. Good time to do some unilateral training. <laughs> No, seriously though, uh, um, would you would you keep training the side they're capable of training uh, while that other arm's out? Yeah, yeah, and the reason is uh, because there's a lot of transfer and carryover from one side to another. Um, there's actually been research done on this. Um, you know, if you did strap one one arm in a cast, and you're like, I'm only gonna do uh, dumbbell bench press with my right right arm and I'm going to do curls with my right arm, blah, blah, blah. It's like some of that muscle growth will actually extend to the the other side or bleed over to the other side. You're not just going to have this like disgustingly atrophied left side and then this right side is going to be massive. Like you'll have it like uh, where the cast is or what's being actually um, stabilized, but you won't have it across the entire upper body. So yeah, if someone's capable of training one side of the body and, you know, they're in that thing for a, an extended period of time, I definitely would train unilaterally with the limb that I could. If that limb was out of commission for a week, I would just take the entire week off of upper body. But if that was an extended time and it's like, yeah, let's let's do some work on that side yeah. that we can do some work on. Yeah. Okay. Um, anything else to add there on uh, discrepancies? Nope. I mean, there's so many hundreds of thousands of examples that we could give there, um, but I don't think we need to. Let's... Uh, going to managing intensity and using uh, unilateral versus bilateral training if the goal is to manage intensity or maybe you have a master's athlete who Mm -hmm. just can't recover as well as they used to be able to maybe you have someone that has really stressed out life and they're just going through a tough period right now and uh, you're trying not to add a bunch of stress through training um what would be a useful tool here um all right so this in my opinion depends on the pattern that's being used yep as well as the capabilities of the person. So I want to say all things being equal, unilateral work, I would, I would, I would, uh, bias that if the goal is to manage intensity, but just imagine if you have someone that doing unilateral work is extremely challenging to them, uh, cognitively even, right? Like imagine the person that when they get into a lunge and they do a couple reps, especially with load, they're just like completely wiped out because they had to concentrate so much and every single repetition needed so much effort. Maybe unilateral work to manage intensity isn't the best thing for that person. Maybe we're doing like, uh, you know, if we're just trying to get work in and, and just like go through some patterns, maybe we're choosing like open chain exercises and we're not biasing unilateral or bilateral. Maybe we're just looking somewhere else, but if they're capable of performing unilateral work and it's not super taxing on the on the nervous system i would bias uh unilateral work for most people and the reason for that would be that ultimately the intensity is just lower uh shit for some people yeah yeah yeah. for most people for most people intensity would be lower but i've seen some freaks in uh unilateral work where they're like reverse lunging and split squatting more than they can back squat so got to be careful there with with some people especially those like 
type two fiber people where it's just like, they're just strong as hell, uh, unilaterally. But for most people, uh, intensity will be lower unilaterally. Yeah. I mean, Jacob, my husband just gets completely blown up by a uh, single leg work and has a major distaste for it. Um, and just feels like crap if he's given, you know, B1, B2 of call it like rear foot elevated split squats and then like single leg RDLs or something like that. Yep. He'll be miserable for days. Ooh, so, that's a butt burner. That is, isn't it? <laughs> Gotta work on those uh, glutes, the, the important things. It's biased uh, program designed <laughs> Definitely. by uh, the wife there. I mean, there's times where bilateral, well, there's strategies you could use in bilateral training to manage intensity as well. Um, if you do decide or you want to go with the, you know, a squat or a deadlift or something more conventional like that. I mean, as coaches, we have tempo as a tool. For mm -hmm. example, if we have a client that we don't want them to, you know, hit their five RM today, we give them a, you know, three down, three pause, three up, yep. <laughs> one at the top uh, to, uh, to be able to just bring intensity down. Mm -hmm. So that is another tool in there if we decide that bilateral training yep. is a better option. Yeah. And remember we talked about, gosh, this was some time ago, I think when we were talking about, um, like hypertrophy and all that stuff. And like, we wouldn't do the Zercher squat if the idea is, but you know, that might be a good exercise selection if we want to manage intensity, you know, put people in, uh, awkward, odd object, uh, positions to manage intensity as well. And you could still do that bilaterally, get in some really good work. Um, and because you're putting that barrier in, they actually can't, they actually can't lift a ton of, of load. So that's something that I've, that I've used quite often as well. We found a use for the Zercher squat. Yeah. It's hey, I'm, I'm not a I'm not a hater of the Zercher. I just don't want people doing Zercher squats to get bigger quads. You know, it's, it's the example. It's the best example yeah. to use in that yeah, yeah. in that situation. <laughs> what do you think, Emma? She's not sure. Oh, I caught her off guard. Yeah, the one where it's in the elbows. Oh, I know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. she knows the Zercher. Oh, yeah. She's done. You've done I'm decent amount of Zercher yeah, carries and stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. To fix that saggy scap, Zercher carries. That's it. Got it. Okay. There we go. Um, let's talk motor control. So uh, okay. developing yeah, motor control. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So probably yeah. a brand new trainee. I'm so excited <laughs> for motor control. Brand new trainee comes into your gym and uh, you take him through the wonderful OPEX move assessment. And you guys go through, you know, your squat, bend, push, pull, lunge, core assessments. And you see that they're just a train wreck and they don't know how to move their body through space. <laughs> yes. And it's a fail like across the board. They just, uh -huh. they just... Total newbie, no efficiency in movement patterns whatsoever. Bilateral or unilateral training? Ooh, man, this one is very pattern dependent, yeah, right? So when we talk about, <laughs> think about someone that can't do an air squat, it's like, are we going to have them do single leg squats? Obviously, pistol squats. Yes, answer, exactly, right? right? <laughs> Maybe we'll have them do some like step down stuff, some like Poliquin uh, step up, stuff like that. But um, yeah, I think I think it depends on the pattern, depends on the person, uh, depends on if we're uh, trying to clean up a discrepancy and that's why we're doing motor control or we're just trying to like learn a pattern and that's why we're doing motor control. Um, if it's the, if it's the latter, if they're just trying to learn the pattern, I would actually bias bilateral because of the amount of time under tension and volume that's going to be needed in a session, right? So, uh, we just lay out like a, a one, a two, B one, B two. Imagine if every single one of those exercises were unilateral exercises, that really quick and efficient training session just turned into two hours because we're not just doing A1, A2, B1, B2 times four. We're doing that times eight because we're doing two sets per set, essentially. So um, it gets nuanced and a little bit weird there. Uh, but, you know, 
that doesn't mean that the, the entire A1 through B2 has to be unilateral. And that's where I go to, I hedge and I say it depends on the pattern that we're working on. Um, for upper body movements, I, I bias unilateral if we're trying to build motor control or, or uh, clean up a discrepancy. For lower body, I'd actually go the other way because if someone doesn't have the ability to move through that pattern, they're not going to be able to pick a, a leg up off the ground and, and, uh, and bend or squat. I know the lunge is a little bit different because that is unilateral because we're in that lunge stance. Um, but yeah, for the bend and the squat, I would actually bias bilateral for people. Yeah. When you add unilateral for those lower body patterns, it does add that entire core stability uh, mm -hmm. factor that, yep. that they're going to have to organize their brain around. Uh, and obviously we want them to develop that over time, but like just focusing on two feet planted on the ground and not having to worry about balancing on one foot, is probably a good starting point for people. Yeah. And I think we have to think about people's function as well, right? It's like, how functional is it for this person to do a bunch of unilateral work versus this other person? Uh, we can think of like other examples or like specific examples. Um, I like to use the waiter example because waiters usually do this, right? So it's like maybe for a waiter uh, or a professional bartender, I was going to do a shake with like a thing. <laughs> <laughs> but that would have probably looked weird on camera. So I'm not going to do the bartender shake. You guys know what I mean. <laughs> so maybe, <laughs> so maybe, uh, maybe unilateral work for those individuals yeah. would be uh, more appropriate. We look at someone like a contractor that's like, you know, pushing things, pulling things, uh, bending over, picking things up, maybe bilateral work would be more appropriate based on their function. So I, I think that's the beauty of uh, personalized fitness when you look at the person and what that person really needs. Yeah. And ultimately, like, brand new novice are you in the still gym. thinking about the shake <laughs> of course i am i have the humor of an 11 year old boy <laughs> um brand new person coming into the gym uh if they develop motor control in their squat pattern and their bend pattern on two feet it's probably <laughs> just don't look at me like that <laughs> it's gonna have some positive carryover to yeah. unilateral exercises as yeah, well sure. uh it's yeah just you know, beginner training age. Mm -hmm. um, on the unilateral stuff for upper body, uh, I know a lot of the times it can, it's just that like connection to understanding what it feels like to contract your lats mm -hmm. and, and, you know, contract your biceps as you do a bicep curl that people can have a really hard time with and it limits them in the movement pattern because they just don't know what they're meant to be yep. feeling. So it can be a great time to use unilateral exercises because, mm -hmm. okay, now instead of thinking about contracting my biceps on, with two arms, I can just focus on the one yep. arm at a time. I just did this. <laughs> <laughs> Fell for it. <laughs> As long as I'm not doing it, I think it's okay if you do it. Well, I don't know if it is. I think well, it might yeah, be yeah. worse. Yeah, that's true. Guys, this is just taking a turn this yeah. episode. Yeah. But, well, let me let me get us back on track. Um, I do think uh, single arm cable exercises are extremely underrated. Yeah. Yeah. I really, really like single arm cable exercises. <laughs> You're still <laughs> laughing. Yeah. She's, she can't, she can't lose this. I don't know what's happening. I'm fine. We it's may need to take a break. No, we're, we're good. good. We're we good. got we're this. Good. We're professionals, we're guys. Yeah. yeah. Mm hmm. This is hey, this is the rustiness of being off for a couple of weeks. She can't yes. take my humor anymore. I'm too. I'm actually too funny. You got funnier. Yeah. You, you took a break <laughs> and you got funnier. <laughs> but anyway, Just, yeah, single arm cable exercises are extremely underrated. Um, and even like single arm machine exercises, like uh, locked in place machine exercises, relative to motor control. Because when we think about individuals having a lack of motor control, usually it's because they've never actually created tension 
in that musculature. Um, and I know we break things down in patterns, but we can go deeper than that, right? Like we do it all the time where it's like pull. Well, we're talking about elbow flexion in the pull or push. Uh, specifically, we're talking about elbow extension. Like people may not have a bunch of experience doing this with their elbow with tension and control. <laughs> <laughs> We're, we're good. We're good. Oh man, I was doing an elbow flexion thing. Um, I should have done the bicep curl. That would have been less funny for for Georgia. <laughs> no, but I think those are extremely underrated. Definitely. I think we should just move on to muscle endurance, <laughs> which is our last. Uh, last we'll keep this one lower body uh, specific. <laughs> I don't know muscle if that's endurance. Better. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so muscle endurance is is the goal. Uh, we choosing bilateral or unilateral. Uh, for muscle endurance, uh, efficacy wise and like what we need to do to build, um, muscle endurance, it has to be bilateral, except if we're talking about the lunge pattern, obviously. Yes. Um, but yeah. And the reason why I say that is just because there's a lot of, when we start looking at like basics of building, uh, muscle endurance and what's happening in the system, uh, the goal is to build fatigue fast. Right. And to, to uh, like you're training to push that fatigue to the right a little bit. So if we're doing that with the right arm and then we go and we do that with the left arm, it's like, we're losing, we're losing some muscle endurance, um, opportunity, if that makes sense. Yeah. Right. Um, so for muscle endurance, it's just more efficient to train muscle endurance, uh, bilaterally, unless you're looking at a very specific case of like someone having to have muscle endurance in a single arm dumbbell snatch. Right. It's like, okay, maybe we do start to build some uh, unilaterally in that in that situation. Why does someone need muscle endurance? Um, yeah, I mean that's that's dependent on on who they are and and uh, you know what they're what they're building that muscle endurance for. I think the easy one is like fitness, right? And like fitness for a sport. Um, I think that's like the easiest one to like imagine and see and connect to. But when we look at uh, strength endurance and just getting really strong and pushing that out to the right um i think muscle endurance or strength endurance that's very beneficial for everyone to train eventually when they're capable of training it yeah thank you so everyone good <laughs> yeah, good everyone. answer i like it uh unilateral versus bilateral anything to add on on the goals that we just walked through um no no so what is your choice overall bilateral or unilateral if you could only do one what would it be oh if I can only do one, what would it be? We talked about this briefly yesterday. Um, and I, I think I we disagreed, if, didn't we? Yeah, I think we did. I don't know if I changed my mind, though. I thought about it a little bit last night. You go first. I'm like, f actually have forgotten what I said yesterday, but I think I said unilateral, you right? Said unilateral, yeah, 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 I would go unilateral. Um, it's a little bit selfish, but I just have some like left to right stuff that I like to be able to deal with. And I do better when I have unilateral work in my training because of that. So if unilateral is all I have to prescribe to myself and my clients, then I'm, you know, I'm choosing what's best for me. <laughs> I'm going with <laughs> unilateral training. <laughs> I'm going to stick to my guns. So I, I did say bilateral yesterday yep. and my reason still stands uh, with the efficiency of, of a training session yep. and being able to like get in and get out. Um, just that A1 through B2 example that I laid out earlier. Imagine that being A1 through C2, right? Like that's a very, very long training session. So um, all things being equal, um, if someone's capable of doing bilateral work, I would prefer bilateral over unilateral if I had to choose one. But 
good thing we live in this great world where we can choose both. So I'll use both. Yes, freedom. Uh, <laughs> Follow-up question, barbells or dumbbells? We disagreed on this as well. We um, Dumbbells. Yeah. Yeah, dumbbells. And this is, this is considering uh, – this is with the consideration that I have whatever loads I need for myself and the people that I coach in dumbbells. So it's like, you know, two and a half pounds all the way up to like 150 pounds in dumbbells with increments of five, right? So I would definitely go dumbbells over uh, over barbells. I went barbells based on my experience during uh, lockdown. I took a barbell and a set of plates home and I had a great time mm-hmm. barbell lifting on my uh, front patio. <laughs> and I was a little worried about the unilateral work at first, but found ways to push and pull single arm, yep. uh, single leg with a barbell. Uh, and I just hate gripping dumbbells. Is yeah. it, like the idea that I would have to like hold and grip dumbbells every day for training makes me a little bit sad. I'd like to be able to put a bar on my back. Oh, man. So, I yeah. think you have some... Uh, I need stronger grips. Yeah. I probably would benefit from it, yeah. um, but I just don't want to. Just that, that uh, statement just tells us that you need to do more dumbbell work. I guess I do. Especially for your craft, your well, BJJ. Th- this is it. You this need is to it. I need those grab, iron grips. Grab people. Mm-hmm. Throw those people. You know what I mean? You don't want to be like, oh, you slipped out of my hand. I don't do that. <laughs> I have strong grips, man. <laughs> Well, guys, uh, leave us a comment if you're on YouTube and let us know if you prefer unilateral or bilateral training and why. We're very curious to know. Uh, As always, if you're on audio, we love reviews. So please leave us a review and let us know uh, if you enjoyed our conversation today. And if you didn't, then uh, lie to us. We we would appreciate that. Or just tell the truth. Let us know. (laughs) That too. Be honest, guys. It's good to be humbled every now and again. It definitely is. It's good for people to give some good good criticism. Definitely. It helps us grow. Just Um, just push it toward Georgia, not me. (laughs) I can't handle it. (laughs) He's pretty weak. Uh, Last last point, guys, is uh, just remember that we are opening enrollment for our CCP cohort. When this goes live, we will be open for that October group. So if you want to get in, uh, if you want to make sure you secure your textbooks, because we will have a limited number, please make sure you head to opexfit.com go apply to ccp and we'll have a chat last cohort of the year right yeah last cohort of the year last chance do it guys see you guys